Could you imagine in the key if they just allowed reaping and heel hooks? A lot of those issues that I have a problem with in key matches, the eight minutes of 50-50, the lapel guards and all this stuff and, and the, the lockdowns, it's like a, a lot of those, not everything, but a lot of those would be, they would have to be reworked, right? Like they would just, those things wouldn't be as effective as they are at slowing the game down. I don't know why he had to like has to not have heel hooks. I don't understand why that's the case. Um, why should no gi have them? But gi is like it's blasphemous. It it makes no sense to me. It's just at this point, allow them to do heel hooks, even if it's just that brown and black belt or just black belt. And then I think you're gonna have a lot more exciting matches. I might even go back to competing in the gi. Uh, because I like collar chokes. I love choking guys from the back with lapels. I mean, I think that's one of the, I think that's probably the coolest way to, to end a match is but with like a bow and arrow choke. If they just allow that, even on like a, a random, like a one event only, it's like you guys could do heel hooks. Let's just see how it goes. I think that would be awesome. Um, and then I wouldn't talk nearly as much shit about the gi, but right now it's just, it's, it's just not, not entertaining to me. I think they should definitely adjust that. And then I think it would be more entertaining for everybody. Well, if there's one thing I know about the IBJJF, it's that they take criticism well. So don't worry about that. <laughs>
with a certain swag that this guy has. He has made a thing of sitting in chairs. Now, I don't know who, Gordon Ryan's not doing that. Gordon Ryan's not sitting on chairs. You're not seeing Craig Jones go and sip coffee eloquently. You see him looking like a goon. Not this guy, this guy's class. And more importantly, I've seen him compete at a high level. Uh, he is a gentleman who I've photographed before. And I was like, yo, these are some great, great photos. My man always gives a great match. If you see him in a match, you know that you're guaranteed a very fun one. But uh, I've been a fan of his work. I have seen some of his instructionals through BJJ Fanatics. And I got to tell you, you don't get to be 17th ranked at 185 for no reason. I got to tell you this. I don't know where the 185 is because my man also looks very trim. So I'm very excited to talk to the very first time one, David Garmo. David, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Thank you. I'm very, very well. I do have to ask, though, where did this furniture sitting chair thing come from? Because I looked at it and I go, okay, it's a good gag once. But it is a recurring theme. And like the care and the time that you take into doing it is always like, oh, this is a recurring segment for my man here. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was actually on my honeymoon uh, with my wife, and we were in Paris, and everything in Paris is amazing. All the you know all the furniture, everything is designed so well. And so I I love chairs. I love them. I just love sitting in different chairs and seeing how they feel, and you know uh, having a drink and all that. And so I started seeing a bunch of chairs that I'd never seen before by these different designers and architects and all that stuff, and. I just started recording myself sitting in them. My wife is recording me sitting in these chairs. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this footage, but we're just going to have, we're just going to record. And so I recorded myself sitting in like, I don't know, 10 chairs throughout the, uh, the honeymoon. And uh, I think it was on the way back home. Uh, I just started putting them together because I was bored on a flight and then I posted it and then it got some decent, it got some more traction than some of my jujitsu stuff. I'm like, I like this too. This could be fun. And then I just kept doing it uh, for a little while. Every time I'd see a really cool chair, something that inspired me a little bit. And that's where I came from. It was just totally uh, by accident. The original plan was to take footage of toilets in Paris. That was the original plan. And not necessarily to sit in them, but that was my idea. And then I just shifted it to chairs because then I could just sit in them and it could be fun. But uh, yeah, that's, that's how that started. <laughs> I'm glad I asked this because I now have the inside intel of knowing it could have been a much less classier segment. Like in my brain, <laughs> there's sophistication to it. You're like, I don't know, toilets. And then somebody was like, I don't know, man, what about this chair? And uh, yeah, no, no. It, 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 I think the right choice was made. My question here, though, is what do you look for in a chair that you sit down? Because you know, you're not sitting down in some park chair. You're not sitting down in a folding chair. What uh, essence or core are you looking for in one of the chairs that you are trying to bring attention to, sir? Uh, it, you know, there's the there's the function over form, and then there's the form over function. It just it just depends. Uh, if I want to have a drink, I need that form and function to kind of they need they need to go together. They need, it needs to be an elegant chair, but comfortable enough to sit in and get that, you know, get drunk, right? And, and, and in, a, in a nice and enjoyable way. Um, and then sometimes it's just, it's a chair you're going to sit in for two minutes just because you're, it's a, it's like a transit stop, 
right? And then that one can just be all form. It could just be this most uncomfortable thing in the world, but it's elegant and it's designed and it looks really cool. Uh, and then, uh, and then the best chairs are the ones that are both. They just they there's that uh, that kind of like they both go here function form and then all of a sudden this beautiful ridiculously awesome looking chair that you know is not going to be comfortable is and that's what i look for so and those are usually done by the most uh, incredible architects some people who just they study uh, uh the building of things and the designing of things so well they they create these chairs that are really awesome and so that's what i look for typically um i don't care if it uh, always looks really intricate and it's not necessarily the thing it's just does it make sense and uh I wouldn't even know how to put that into real word, like, you know, into like detailed words. I, I don't have the words to express that, but does it make sense? And a lot of times those chairs that I post, they make sense for some reason. You should work on the, the selling of it because you may be onto something that is more lucrative than a jujitsu career here, because I know you mentioned that you got some traction and more than some of your jujitsu moves. It's not that your jujitsu is bad. It's that there's a saturated market of everybody being like, I invented a move. They didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's this really new thing that people are doing. It's not. And people go, all right, let me see how it is. And you've kind of been there, done that. This is right. something that when I saw it, I go, oh, this is kind of your thing. Like, that's dope. And I immediately thought I was like, hey, you know, if David's smart enough, he may be able to parlay this into a, a series. So I work in entertainment. And my whole thing is always that pitch meeting. You know, sometimes it's called an elevator pitch. If you had 30 seconds, what do you say to the person? So find those words because I guarantee you, I think the second part of your career could very easily be a Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous-esque. Like, you just go right. and you're, like, talking into people and be like, yeah, I want to drink and sit on chairs and tell you what I feel about them because they're classy. Somebody be like, all right, sounds good. Let's send you there. You go be like, yeah, work on the pitch, and I think you're good because you're right. almost there. We're, we're working on. Uh, I just moved into a new home, and uh, I want to create this like, I want it to be a museum of chairs. That's that that is a goal of mine. So I, I have the space, and so now I just have to start accumulating the best pieces. And I've got some, uh, but they're not ready to be to be shown to the world just oh, yet. Oh wow. Okay. So, no, no, no. Uh, I didn't ask for it, sir. Nobody's asking for the exclusive here. <laughs> I'm trying to give you a TV program, so I'm not right, taking right, away right. business. Uh, having said that, though, okay, I do have follow-ups here. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about it. I think you can also combine the two, okay? Now, now hear me out. I know this takes a second to kind of process, but uh, do you ever find yourself in jiu-jitsu utilizing, say, I don't know, a move like an electric chair because then both businesses can come in together and then that <laughs> way when you go over you're like would you like to visit the electric chair oh hey everybody come back to my electric chair where i just share my thoughts on on sherry and brandy on, on a given week. <laughs> that's a it's, it's not a bad idea there's there's something there's something there there's some there's some connection between jiu-jitsu and sitting in chairs for sure, right? You have to be able to get into them. And so that's that's a very uh, movement-focused thing, right? I say that because uh, as a very uh, one-directional uh, or <laughs> untalented jiu-jitsu grappler, one of the moves that people hate getting hit with in my area is always when they're like, how did you hit me with an electric chair? Like they always feel like I'm an adult. You can't do that to me. 
and I, mm-hmm. I find it and they're like, how do you find it? And I go, it's like the first move they taught me. So like <laughs> sometimes with people's first moves, you're like, oh, if it was a Kimura, it'd be a Kimura every minute. I go, right. this is just the one where if you fuck up, I see it faster than most moves. Mm-hmm. But they're like, I'm 10th planet too. And I was like, my friend, I started in 10th planet. It's not like you're bad at it. It's just, I found it. So, uh, you yeah. know, when people say a word long enough, I'm like, chair, chair, mm, pass this over to Garmo and see if he wants mm-hmm. to take it. And then that way I can get 10% of all future <laughs> residuals. Anyway, Three, what am I saying? 3%. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, no, no, no. The negotiation is going to happen off air. I'll let you know this right now. You're, you have a very good mustache, but you do not have this A top of the line grade here, sir, my friend. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, well, I'll let you keep that one because you, you did give me the compliments on the mustache. I'll take it. I'm just, I'm letting you know there, there are just different levels to facial hair here. Mine is iconic. You could look good without yours. People don't want to see me without this, thus iconic. So I just want to make sure you understand that. Uh, David, I want to get into this as well. You mentioned drinks, and this is something I geek out with with other people in the sport because not everybody drinks in the sport. So if you do drink, I do have to ask, what are your, your particular favorites? It sounds like it's usually in a glass, but what if you have the choice to drink right now, what is the preferred drink of choice for you, sir? It's all set and setting. It's very important to me. I drink different things depending on what I'm doing. But if uh, I have a buddy over the house and we're sitting down, we're talking, uh, be it uh, just normal bullshit or business or whatever, we're going to have uh, either a glass of bourbon or whiskey or, or potentially, uh, depending on how uh, what our conversation leads us to, it might be cognac, right? Because uh, So I'm, I'm Chaldean, which is a basically Catholic, Iraqis, and then a different ethnicity. It doesn't matter. But all of us, we all, we all grew up drinking Hennessy. That was like a, that was the thing. Now, we took that from the, the African-American communities in Detroit, and then we just we made it our own thing, right? So uh, Hennessy, Remy, all these different cognacs. Uh, personally, I'm not a, the biggest fan of cognac, but I do like some. So I'll drink those if we really like, like to go far afield in a conversation. If it's just a normal day and we want to drink a little bit, a little bit of whiskey or bourbon, that's what I'm going with. Uh, if summertime outside doing some work in the, in the yard, a beer is always great. Uh, but everything is set and setting. I, I'm not going to have a glass of wine at 2 p.m. Uh, you know, with, my, uh, with my ramen. You know, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to be one of those things that I do. Uh, but uh, if it makes sense in the moment, that's, that, that's typically what I'll uh, go to. Evening. Cocktails with the friends, I'm probably going to have an old-fashioned or some other type of uh, very boozy uh, cocktail. Uh, but, you know, I kind of stick in that, in that realm right there, you know, because I only, I only drink a little bit. I drink a glass or two, uh, three at the most, because I'm not that – I can't drink five drinks. I'll be annihilated and I'll feel terrible. I won't be able to train the next day. And so for me, I just – I like to enjoy the good stuff in small quantities and then I can enjoy it a lot better. You didn't need to tell me that. I, I know that about it. You, listen, this is the unfortunate part. This is what uh, separates us as like professional athlete host. Because when I'm <laughs> around other athletes and they're like, hey, man, I want to grab a beer with you. And I'm like, great. They'll have one and a half. But that yeah. body fat isn't absorbing any of it. Meanwhile, host guy sounds exactly the same because body fat is taking care of most of that alcohol. And I'm just like, this is great. <laughs> So when they're getting sauced, I'm like, 
hey, I think you're done. Or like, they're like, dude, you don't sound drunk. And I'm like, I might be, but I'm comparatively not. So mm-hmm. A plus. Okay. I'm going to give you a couple scenarios here because you're all about space, function, right time, right place, all that sort of a thing. But let's say I have you over and I want to get the instant reaction on the different types of drinks. So if I have you over and I hand you the following, I just want you to give me your honest reaction on what you would do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like, let's say it's a house party, just regular sure. get together. And I go, Hey David, uh, here you go. And I hand you a glass and it is a Chardonnay. What's your reaction? Uh, I would drink it. Okay. Okay. I would drink it. I would, I would take it and I would, you know, I would, I'll let it take a sip and that'd probably hold it for quite a while. It would take me a while to finish. That's yeah, likely okay. what would happen. Okay, all right. Let's say you come in, and I hand you a PBR. What I'm in. Your, you're in. I'm, dri- oh, I'm drinking it. Yeah. If it's a house party, you're, you're you know we're all yeah, yeah. together. Everybody's standing up. We're milling about, hanging out. Yeah, I'm drinking it. Are you asking me any questions about the PBR, or do you just accept it as fact? I'm gonna look. I, I'm gonna scan the room. If I see a bunch of rock glasses. And and people are drinking, you know, darker liquor, and, and and it's not in red solo cups. I will take it, and I will drink it. But if, if they're if they're not in red solo cups, if they're in red solo, cups, I'm drinking it. Not no questions asked. All good to go. Right, but if David. everybody else is having some higher end liquor, I'm gonna look at you like, thanks. Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're gonna wonder. You're like, how did I get this and not this? I understand. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's a good. Uh, it's a good profile. All right, let's do this. And here, this is kind of an open-ended question. It could be a trick question. But you walk in, and I'll hand you an IPA. What do you do? I look at it, and I look at you, and I look at it again, and then I just hold it. And I hope that as, as my host, you take it away from me, and you give me something else. That's, that's wow. What so my man does not do IPAs. Okay. I, I, I can't stand them, but... I just, I don't get it. I, 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 that's one thing I just don't understand. I don't understand why people like it. My brother, super into IPAs, loves them all. And I just, I think they taste terrible. So I don't, I, I'm, I'm just not about it. All right. This is where we became different friends, but that's fine. I'm just going to interview your brother now at this point. <laughs> um, now, I, I'm an IPA fan, but I do recognize it can be a certain kind of taste. The reason why I ask is you kind of start to know if somebody has a glass full of something that they like for hard alcohol, they don't always tend to be IPA people. So you mm-hmm. kind of get that sense of like, okay, the difference maker is, is that they are usually equally offended by PBR as they would be an IPA. But when you were high classy on being like, I'll drink a PBR, absolutely. And then I'm like, IPA, you're like, we have to leave. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're out. Right now. I, I like a nice crisp lager or, or you know, uh, a Pilsner. I like that. I like, I'm very into Japanese beers or like the, the quintessential Japanese beers. Like it, something easy to drink. I'm, I'm totally about that. Okay. Fair enough. Having said that, I also noticed there's a particular, uh, how do I put this? There's some time that you put into what I see in your coffee? Are you also a coffee snob or are you not? Because the one thing that happened is, and people don't know this, but when you're like, hey, are we doing this? You know, where's the link coming? I was like, oh, I have to make some coffee real quick. 
And then I recognize, I'm like, oh, no, I'm asking somebody who actually would understand what that means. The problem mm -hmm. is I do very surface level coffee, the bulk of which is me being like, I have a Keurig. Nope, just kidding. No, I have an espresso machine because oh. I have upgraded to that and now I can't go back down. So for sure. you, you look like a good dude who's actually filtering your coffee and taking your time. Am I wrong about this? No, 100% I am. But I do that every morning. So I make, I make the perfect cup of coffee every single morning. I have my whole setup. Uh, I do pour over. I, I get the best beans you could possibly find. And I grind it all uh, right before I make my cup, all that, that whole thing. But I also have an espresso, and I drink that right before we got on because I don't always want to do that every time I want a cup of coffee. So if I have two cups in a day, my first cup is always going to be the most important one. It's going to be that pour over. It's part of my morning ritual. It makes me feel good, and I have this incredible start to my day. Then anything else after that, it can be dog shit coffee. It's fine. Uh, Nespresso, in my opinion, is above Keurig, but it's also not the best. But I enjoy it. It's fine. If I need some more, I'll, I'll enjoy it. Mine is more so out of time because mm -hmm. as much as I would like to go Euro dreams of sushi uh, kind of vibe with my coffee, I don't have that time. I, I Listen, the fact that I even started drinking coffee is short of a miracle. So, you know, I always made fun of people who drank coffee like that. And then I started working in entertainment and I realized, oh, shit, this is what makes the show go. Like, if I don't have this, yeah. I, I can't. And I also work, uh, profile reveal, uh, on game shows. I am occasionally the buzzer, meaning I am the guy who says yes or no if somebody gives it an answer. And I discovered that if I have too much coffee and I have my hand on the thing, I like start getting the jittery finger and I go, oh, I might give away money. I cannot have coffee like three <laughs> times a day. So I have to cut myself off at a certain point. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's usually out of function that I have it. I would love to do it. And it looks so great. Like every video I've ever seen somebody making coffee, I go, oh, that looks so dope. I should totally do that. And then it comes down to the reality, and I'm like, bro, I got a pressure cooker just so we could speed this shit up for food. You right. think I'm going to take that time to do coffee? Like, nah, dude, I barely have this habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, so, but you know what, though? If you, if you had a cup of coffee that I made you or somebody else who really knew how to make a cup of coffee, it changed your entire outlook on things. I'm telling you. I, that's, that, that's how that happened to me. I drank my first cup of coffee at 24 years old, and it just so happened to be one of the best uh, coffee shops in Michigan. It, it would just randomly happen to be that way. And then I drank other dog shit coffee, and I was like, oh, this sucks. You know what I mean? And then eventually I learned how to do it myself. But uh, it's, 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 it's like learning jiu-jitsu from a really good instructor versus like a really shitty instructor. It's like, which one are you going to want to do? Which Maybe you have to drive an extra 15, 25 minutes, but it's going to be worth it. Uh, same thing here. Cool. That's that's all I needed, David. Was another <laughs> hobby to have. No, no, no. Just another hobby to have. Like I don't got enough shit. Even when I have to explain this to civilians, and I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this jitsu thing, and they're like, oh, cool. So you've been practicing it for a long time. You gonna you got a test coming up or something? I was like, nah, I just like it. They're like, well, you keep saying you're going to practice, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to train. I don't know what to tell you. Oh, what are you training for? Just because I fucking like it. Like, okay, cool. When you tell me this, I'd be like, hey, um, do you want some coffee? And I'd be like, 
I need you to get me beans from only the finest establishment. And I'm, I'm looking more for an Italian style today. They're going to be like, Rap, you can fuck off. I'm like, this is Carmo's fault. Don't talk to me. All right, I will take you up on this offer. If we're ever same place, same time, and all things considered, and you're not uh, massacring people on the mats, and we have a way to do it, I would 100% get my reaction to it. And I think if only because I want to see you stare directly at me as you're handing it to me to be like, and because I just, I know the look on my face, which is. Yeah, it's okay. You know, like I know <laughs> what I would do, um, but yeah, I, I would never turn down the opportunity for that. Um, and I'm glad you were able to profile that because I did wonder where that habit came from. So this came from mm -hmm. Michigan and you've continued it. So how long have you been a coffee drinker and what, what like still, do you find new good coffees? And if so, what has been the best one that you have found uh, so far? So um, I get the, when I make my own coffee, I get my beans from this place uh, called Passenger Coffee. They do these, they just, they're the best roaster. They, they source their stuff from all these different places all over the world. Uh, and they just, they roast the best. And they also deep freeze their coffee, a whole bunch of nuts that you don't need to know about. But uh, whenever we travel, uh, me and my wife are, uh, just in general, we always try to find the best coffee shop so we can go to that specifically we'll do pour over because those are typically the best ones. Uh, I don't like espresso coffee uh, nearly as much as I do uh, like hand poured or hand drip coffee. So I tend to lean that way, but depending on, depends on what country you go to. If, like, if I go to Rome or if I go to Italy, it's all going to be espresso. It's all, they, they don't even, they very rarely do hand drip. I and mean, they do, but it's not as common or you know, anywhere in Europe. Uh, with the exception of like the northern Scandinavian countries and stuff. But like when I'm in Japan, it's hand drip is everywhere. It's, it, they're, they're so good at it because they're masters of anything they do. They just like they choose one thing and they, they dedicate their entire life to it, even if it's just literally pouring hot water over a bed of coffee. So uh, there's a few places in, in, in Japan that I really love. There's a place called uh, Onibis Coffee that is probably one of the best cups of coffee you'll ever have. Um, and I've, I've had it dozens and dozens of times and it's always just as good and it just makes you feel nice you know so yeah i would say that uh, that's probably the best cup all right and well i guess this is all to say that you have done an excellent job packaging yourself because from what i see i see this level of sophistication for you that i'm like all right that's pretty dope that's pretty cool and then i see these things where as varied as you also demonstrating a technique and a towel when you were done and i look at that and i go my man really runs the gamut here like he really does go from like yes yes to like oh no dude i i was you guys are doing this technique wrong i just showered i'm really pissed how dare you guys like <laughs> to me i go all right garma's gonna be a very entertaining person at least to to interview uh yeah it's kind of my life <laughs> a, little, a little bit of for sure <laughs> Well, let's get into the origin story for our, our fans and friends here of the show. I want to know where did jujitsu find its way into your life? Because I, I came in a little bit later. I think uh, I, I, you're somebody who I would see compete or I'd be photographing. And I always, always like, oh, OK, that's really cool. And, you know, some of the people that I do as well. So I was always like, yeah, it's pretty easy to get in touch with you. But I did want to know to begin, where does jujitsu begin in, in your story? Uh, so when I was five years old, uh, my mom put me in martial arts and, uh, that martial arts school that I went to, uh, it had 
kids Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. This was back in 1995, where you know really didn't exist anywhere else. Um, they did Thai boxing. That's what they called it back then. You know, just not Muay Thai, but Thai boxing and American karate. And so I did all three of those things, you know, in this program. And so I was exposed to Jiu Jitsu. I mean, as basically as I'm remembering my my earliest memories. Um, and then I did it for a while. It was the absolute lowest level of jiu-jitsu you could possibly uh, be uh, uh, learning, uh, especially, you know, when, you know, the time frame of when we did it, you know, 1995. Uh, and also, I didn't remember anything once I got older, right? I, I kind of knew what it was, but I didn't know how to do anything. And then I got back into it when I was 18 years old. And then that's when I did it and basically never stopped. Uh, and that was in 2008, uh, when I started again as an adult. So I did it for a few years from five to 10 or 11 and then started again when I was 18 after I had wrestled in high school and, and then, you know, wanted to become the, the next UFC champion at, you know, 155 or 170 pounds. That was my goal, you know, when I initially started. I mean, I get it. That's, that's understandable. Uh, I think more people are saying that than astronaut when they're asked what they want to do with their lives. So it, mm -hmm. it kind of checks out. I will ask this. Okay. So you're starting young, Talk to me a little bit about your wrestling career, because I think that part to me also checks out because the way that I see you aggressively in your matches, you kind of wonder, you're like, well, it didn't really all come from Not all of us can do that. So for you, uh, what was it like wrestling and how did you get involved with that? Uh, so my cousin who wrestled for the same school that I was going to, and he was a few years older than me, he's like, hey, you should wrestle. You're going to get a varsity letter as a freshman. And so immediately I'm like, fuck, yeah, I am. And so I went and wrestled, didn't get a varsity letter. I sucked. And then I just kept doing it. And then uh, so, uh, you know, I was terrible as a freshman, was terrible as a sophomore. I was uh, – average as a junior and I was okay as a senior. So I was never really good. Um, you know, I never, I never made it to States. I never, you know, did anything like that. It wasn't until after high school when I was doing jiu-jitsu that I actually got much better at takedowns and, you know, wrestling, so to speak. Um, you know, I had the background at least, which really helped me in the beginning of my jiu-jitsu. Cause like, you know, I actually knew how to move my body, but I sucked. So, you know, it didn't help me as much as some people might think. Uh, it just helped me more mentally and I, my confidence that I could actually move and I'm not worried about getting hurt every, you know, every time I get on the mat. So uh, it allowed me to train harder earlier on in my career, which definitely was very, very beneficial. But, uh, you know, as a wrestler, I think I had a losing record all four years combined. I will say this because when I work with say my students or even in my own kind of experience, uh, I try to relate this to them in this way, which is there are techniques that people showed me very early on that I looked at and I go, I can't do that. That's not my thing. Like I know what my game is, sir. I don't do that. And then magically three years later, it kind of avails itself. And so I tell people, I'm like, yeah, there's stuff that maybe your brain needs to see but your body's not ready to do. And in your case, it could have been that, that you were getting uh, part of a language that maybe you couldn't speak at the time, but that mm -hmm. laid the foundation for a language that you were able to speak later. So for me, when I hear you say that, I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's cool. But it also, I think, teaches you a certain kind of grit. And I think that part's easier to translate to people where you're like, yeah, you know, I did this wrestling, 
Well, I'm pretty sure that also informed how you were going to approach your jiu-jitsu, which is, hey, you have to be very, very uh, attentive to these details and drill like this and do it like this. Because I've noticed with the people I've worked with in wrestling, I can literally tell them, I'm like, you have to drill this 100 times. And they wouldn't look at me and be like, well, I don't want to do 100. A wrestler just goes, yeah, 100, sounds good. All right, do you want more? And you'd be like, I need 40 of you. Like, that's yeah. what I need. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that attitude always makes me very happy as a, a coach. So having said that, when you were starting to do more in wrestling and then translating that into jiu-jitsu, what was one thing you were able to pull early on in your jiu-jitsu career from your wrestling that you remember or recall? Uh, so it, what I would say, the most important thing that kind of like from my wrestling to jiu-jitsu was knowing how to lose. That was like the biggest thing because I lost so much that I didn't care if I lost in jiu-jitsu. Like, not that I didn't care, but it didn't like affect me in a way that it affected so many of my training partners. You know, I trained with so many guys who were talented who would win a lot, like early on white belt, maybe even blue belt and stuff. They'd win a lot. And then all of a sudden they'd go against one hammer and that hammer would just shatter. Them. And they would, they, they're, they're done competing. They quit six, they quit jiu-jitsu six months later. It's like one loss just crushed them. And it's me, I'm almost taking L's left and right. Like <laughs> you, you, I, I couldn't go to a tournament and not lose. And, uh, you know, in wrestling. And then, so like I had already lost like 50 times. And so by the time I, I started doing jiu-jitsu, it's like, if I had lost a match, okay, it's like I, I had already done that. So that was the biggest thing. Like my attitude as far as competition was concerned, you know, it, I was never – it never bummed me out that much. I had a, my second tournament I ever did. I lost seven matches in a row. It was my second tournament. Like, and, I, and I started competing like almost right away. So my second tournament was like two and a half months after I started doing jiu-jitsu. And I lost seven matches in a row. I don't know – who, like I, I can't look at anybody right now and say, for like for sure, if that guy loses seven matches in a row, he's going to come back to jiu-jitsu on Monday, you know. Uh, but because I sucked so bad before, it's like that's just normal. It's like all right, well, you know, at least it wasn't eight, you know, at least it wasn't ten, <laughs> and uh, and so you know that's that was probably the biggest thing. But I mean, you know, having some takedown skills. Uh, was was definitely helpful because at least I could have minor wins against guys who are better at jiu-jitsu than me. At least I could like, oh, well, at least I took them down, you know, and that helped. That was very helpful. I have to be honest with you. I feel like nobody ever knows it's a good thing to lose in that way where the stakes are much lower because there are plenty of people who are friendly with the show who are very good at jiu-jitsu and names that I don't feel I need to drop, but many people know who I've talked to after a match and they literally have been so devastated by a loss where you're like, yeah, of course you want to love it. You want to, that's part of what the, the agreement is. I'm going to go really hard. I'm going to go there. And it, I will occasionally find myself in those situations where I go up to them and they're kind of a head case and I go, okay, are you bad at jujitsu? Like, did you suddenly become bad or did you have a bad day? There's a difference between the two. And then it really becomes this conversation where I go, you will only advance to the top tier of this sport if you know how to manage a loss. Because if you don't know how to do this, you get into a headspace where you don't advance. And if you don't know how to manage that, that mentality fucks you over, not your talent. And I think once people kind of get that ability, 
you know, I had a lot of friends where I just pull them aside. I was like, let's chat real quick. And I'd be like, Hey, listen, I don't like saying this. Like, obviously you should be pissed that you're, you're, you didn't win. Sure. That's care. That's the agreement you make, but you're going to hold yourself back. If you stay on this for too long, give yourself a day pity party for a day. And then Monday, I better see you already thinking of the next thing. And most of the times they do it naturally, but I go, but if you know how to use that loss to motivate you to the next thing, you're going to be at the next thing way faster. So what you did very early is something that I still struggle to work with some of the best guys in the world who just as a friend, I will occasionally see and be like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, you know, they'll, they'll have like, these public posts or they feel like they got to say they have to have like their, I don't know. I think we're very high on social media. So they feel like they have to make like a public statement. They're like my first statement since my loss. And I was like, dude, shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, you're we, we not all, responding yeah. on, on the behalf of the, 1986 bears like mm -hmm. you're literally one dude who just had an off weekend at this one tournament we you know when i say we all anybody who competed who felt like they were representing you know their training partners and coaches and all we all made that post at some point maybe not everybody but i know i did i definitely did that i can't tell you how many apology posts i've made in early on in my career uh, and then it, it, i got to a point where uh i remember I, I did really well in a couple of uh, of larger events like Nogi Pans, Nogi Worlds, uh, you know, kind of back to back um, as a purple belt, and I, and I took second place in both of them. It was the first time I ever did anything like really meaningful as far as meddling at these larger events. And uh, I remember after those events, I'm like, man, my life is going to change, right? My life is going to change. And this is after making a hundred posts about I'm sorry that I lost and I'll become back stronger than ever and all that stuff. And I remember nobody gave a shit. Like, oh yeah, like in the comments, like congratulations, but then nobody cares past that. Like it's, it's not a big deal besides the people who are closest to you. And even then it's just, they're happy for you that you're happy and that's it. Um, because it doesn't really do anything in a meaningful way for your life, the, the end result, right? That like that medal that you get or that uh, placement. But uh, so after that, I'm like, nobody really gives a shit whether you win or so they definitely don't care if you lose. So I kind of, I started getting away from that. And I'm sure I'm still every so often would pull off the, I'm sorry guys. Cause you know, you lose more than you win, especially at that highest level, at least when it came to me, but you know, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. It's like, you know, you think, you know, you put, you put yourself in a position where like you feel like everybody is like waiting for you to win or they need you to win, but nobody needs anything from you. They just, they, if they if they if they like you, they just they want you to win for your own, you know, just for yourself. But we're doing jujitsu. We're not we're not making millions of dollars. I mean, there's a couple guys doing that right now, you know, and it's, they're both Gordon Ryan, you know. So like, it doesn't matter. But it's it's just you know, it, it's a weird thing. I the best guy, the absolute best guys in the world are the guys who lose, and if they take it hard, they are really 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 determined after that. And those are the guys who come back really, really strong. Um, it's it's very rare now to see guys who have been in this sport for a very long time competing at the highest level after they lose become like a basket case. It's really rare to see that. You'll see that with guys who just kind of just got onto the scene. Like maybe they're like, when I say just got on, like just became uh, well-known or maybe they had just like a breakout season or two and that might happen. And then you don't see those guys ever again. But 
now, like all the, the usual suspects, those guys lose all the time. Nobody wins. The only guy that wins all the time is Gordon. And even he has lost in the last few years. You know, it's not very often, but, you know, when he lost, he just came back very determined and then eventually didn't lose for, you know, till, till now. But um, those are the guys you really have to be nervous to compete against because it's okay if they lose. They know that. And then it makes it a lot harder to beat those guys because they're willing to do a little bit more. You know, they're willing to take some risk. And that, that's typically how people uh, stay at that top level, right? They take a little bit of risk. But, uh, you know, I just like to stay in it long enough to where people just keep falling out. And I just, I'm just, you know, as they fall out, the new guys are coming in, they're just kind of lifting me up and then I'm just keep going in this direction. So hopefully by the time I'm 40, I'm the best in the world. That's my goal, right? That's, that's, where I'm, that's what I'm looking at right now. Good on you, man. Although this does not bode well for your master's competition uh, fellow friends. So uh, I like that you're just kind of like, hey, man, by the time we're getting there, just know um, I'm going I'm to take mine. Uh, I know you guys are coming from a, a nice uh, weekend of accounting, but uh, I'm going to massacre you. But it's all good because I, I lost in other places. These dudes are going to be like, dude, I flew here for this. Come on, man. Like you can you can give me one of these. Uh, no, no, no. I, I think you're absolutely right. And when I say that I have met other people with this, I've seen people make huge corrections, but I do like letting people know. I'm like, no, nah, mentality, it doesn't matter if you're starting or you're at the top. It happens everywhere. And I, I've seen it happen on, on multiple levels. It's just the one thing I always feel that I have, especially as somebody who, you know, we see our friends competing against each other all the time. Like we have friends who are like, oh, that whole bracket has been on the show or I train with that person. Yikes. Good luck. And I just have to be Switzerland and be like, ah, good luck, guys. I'll talk to you afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that means that one of you has to lose. So when that happens, you go, all right, I'm going to have to talk to both of you. And conceivably, I'll have something nice to say or something of, of note. But one thing that I have learned over the years is that what I have is perspective. And as a host who watches all these things, all these matches, all these organizations, sometimes I see something that they don't see yet or that they haven't had a chance to process yet. And I just go up to them and I'll say the one or two things and I'm out and I'm like, all right, bye. And so that's kind of where I, I, I jump in here and there. Uh, mm -hmm. So I feel like that's the one thing that uh, every once in a while I find an athlete though, that has right on perspective. Like, they'll come and tell me they're like, yeah, it's kind of a bullshit decision, but all right, you know, it's close. Like, mm -hmm. very few athletes can do that. And so mm -hmm. to me, I go, okay, it's really cool when I have that person because then they know I'm telling them the truth. Like, they, mm -hmm. what they hear and what I'm saying combine into, yeah, okay, I trust you. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. So that usually makes things a little bit easier. Uh, I do want to ask this, though. I always ask this of all of our guests, which is when did you know that you fell in love with jujitsu? Because it's one thing to just do it as a hobby. It's one thing to just kind of come into this world. But when did you know that this was something that you wanted to do professionally, or at least the love for it was so strong that you wanted to do more than just the hobbyist version of it? Um, it was literally my first day. It sounds really ridiculous, but uh, I took... When I was 18 years old and I and I got into jiu-jitsu, you know, right after uh, high school, um, I took my free class and I'm like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I said that to myself. Um, but you have to understand why I might have said that to myself. 
I'm not a I'm not a person who can work a regular job. Um, I can work for like an hour or two at a time, and then I need to take, to do something else. I need to relax, rev, take a break, uh, watch a movie, take a nap, uh, play on my phone. Um, and I've always been that way. Like I, I, that's why I was never really good in school because I I can't sit there and, and pay attention for too long a period of time. Uh, not that I have like ADD, maybe I do or ADHD or whatever, but it's just a I just don't feel comfortable that way. So I like to work really hard for very short bursts. And then I'll come, maybe I'll come back to it later in the day. Maybe I won't. But uh, when I'm doing it, I'm working really hard or um, as efficiently as I can. So day one, I walked in. I did my first class. I don't even remember the class. But I remember going back to my car, taking the uh, pack of cigarettes that I had. There was 11 cigarettes left in this Newport light box uh, that I used to smoke, like a pack and a half a day. And I crushed it up. And I littered in the parking lot of the gym because I was an idiot. I was 18 years old. I just threw it out of my window. And I said, I'm never going to smoke a cigarette again. I'm going to do this full time. And then I came back the next day, paid my membership. Um, and then basically I've been doing it for the last 15 years. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, that was it. That's why I told myself I'm doing this because it's not a regular job. It's not a, I'm not going to go work in the liquor store with my family or the grocery store. I'm going to do this. But do jiu-jitsu. I don't know where that's going to take me. I'm just going to get really good and figure it out. That's pretty dope. And, you know, I have to say, I don't think anybody, uh, when I don't know how much people are paying attention to the litter part of this, I don't think they're sitting there being like, oh, let's call the authorities <laughs> on Mr. Garmo here. And two, I have to say, if anybody's going to ever litter and you're a gym owner, maybe you don't love that the kid threw the cigarettes on the floor, but mm-hmm. like, it's maybe the one time I'm like, well, just don't do this regularly. But like, yeah, I kind of I'll clean it up today because it means you're stopping. So great. I can right. do this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, I, I'm pretty sure people knew, especially when you're making it that pronounced of a metaphor of like, on this day, I am done. I'd be like, all right, he got it out of the system. Let's fucking just clean the shit up now. So, <laughs> right, right. I'm, yeah. I'm good with that. And I'm sure you would be now. Uh one thing I also like to get in terms of perspective, especially for the people whose work I admire, when did you have a breakthrough where you felt like, yeah, this is really connecting? And do you remember kind of when that breakthrough was happening? Because I always find that in most people's jujitsu, there's like a time, like there can be a belt, there can be a moment, there could be a competition where you feel like you're starting to eclipse who you thought you could become or, or, or overperforming or doing something that's a little more exceptional or exceptional enough to be at a high level of competition. And you are. So where do you think that that breakthrough started happening for you? Um, you know, it happened many times, like multiple times, different, you know, of, of different levels. Right. So like, I, I felt like I had a breakthrough, uh, like I mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast, I lost my second tournament seven matches in a row. Um, so it definitely wasn't that, you know, I think, uh, like late into my white belt, uh, career, which you, I know you can't call it that, but you, you know, late into my white belt career, I started to do better. And then into my blue belt, I started to do better. And then like halfway through being a blue belt, I started winning almost every competition that I would go into, uh, with the exception of the worlds that I did one time as a blue belt. And then, you know, I did not win, but, uh, <clears throat> I started beating all the local guys. I started beating all the regional guys. I started you know, basically just going undefeated every event. I feel like that was one of those times. 
Um, and then I got my purple belt and I was doing well right out of the gate, but just not well enough to medal at the pans of the world. Um, I got close a couple of times, um, but just, you know, that doesn't matter. Close doesn't mean anything, right? So um, I, there was like mid blue belt, that was one kind of like, okay, I'm actually, I'm decent. I've got potential. Uh, I'm, I'm able to win. And then into purple belt, it's like, okay, well, it wasn't just that blue belt. My stuff is working across belt levels. Um, and then as a purple belt, I'd compete against different uh, higher rank guys, like brown belts and maybe even some black belts here and there. And I'd beat them uh, in no-gi matches and stuff like that. And then it really wasn't until um, like late into my purple belt career, like right before I was promoted to brown belt, that I started to medal at the international competitions and do well in those events. And then by then, I'm like, I'm the best in the world. Uh, even if I wasn't, I'm the. I, I I just kept saying, I am the best. I am the best at this weight class. At you know, at this belt, this I am number one. I am number one. I just kept telling myself that that I'm one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world, forever. I can't even remember when it actually started to become true that I am actually one of the better guys in the world uh, because I've just been telling myself that for forever, way before it was actually, ever actually true. Um, so I had many times where that was where I kind of like started to kind of hit that stride and, and uh, start performing well. But then I got my black belt and I wasn't doing that well in the beginning. You know, that, that first year of black belt is so tough. You know, everybody that you're fighting has been been competing at black belt for five six seven years and they're tough as nails and you're just coming off of being a brown belt and you know being raw and uh you know then three years into my black belt now i'm doing well again i'm like really you know i'm beating some better guys and i'm doing uh you know more well in these tournaments and you know now i've been competing as a black belt for like five or six years and i'm 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 comfortable going in there with anybody i'll, I'll fight i'll fight gordon now i'll fight whoever you know what i mean I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to fight any of those guys and i feel confident that i could do something you know um so maybe there'll be another one of these like little things and i hope there is you know that gets me to that absolute top tier um you know just kind of preparing myself and continue to do that until one day that becomes obvious looking back very cool man that's a that's a good perspective because it does show a kind of growth and uh, kind of like a trajectory on where people can truly map out like for themselves, like, okay, yeah, I'm here. Or that realization of maybe I'm not the best in the world, but if I approach my craft, like I am, the reality sometimes will match up. It's just a matter of you won't get there unless you actually believe it for yourself though. So if you got some patience for it, you very well can hit that mark, but you also have to kind of match it with the exact workflow. For sure. Okay. With all of these things and more, I do kind of want to know a couple other things as well. Where does teaching find itself for you? And, you know, what is the appeal? Because now you're a gym owner and obviously it's a different craft in itself. Like it's one thing to compete, but it's a different thing to be a teacher you know, what appeals to you on the teaching side and where did you find yourself uh, really starting to come into your own as a teacher as well? Uh, so I've been teaching for quite a long time, right? Teaching at gyms when I, when I, as a purple belt and then kind of uh, even as a brown belt a little bit, and then uh, traveling and teaching, you know, overseas and, and doing all that stuff. Uh, and teaching is fine. I think, I think I can get my point across, especially like in a very 
you know, focused way. I think I'm, I think I'm good at that, you know, getting people to learn the, the minutia of techniques that I, that I know what I'm talking about. Um, but the thing that I find that is more special to me than just teaching um, is coaching, right? I think a lot of people equate teaching and coaching to be the same thing. Your instructor is your coach. Uh, or your coach is your instructor. And I, and I don't think that's actually true. I think that's, uh, I think they're two very different roles. One person may encompass both roles, but the roles are not the same. Okay. So you have somebody who teaches you techniques and especially nowadays, students have so many resources to learn from, right? Like if you uh, are subscribed to the Lachlan submeta, He's your instructor for a lot of the things that you're learning, practicing. Gordon, John, uh, all these other guys, they're your instructor in the moment that you're learning from them through their, their instructionals, but they're not your coach, right? Now, they may teach strategy. They may um, give you advice if you meet them and, and stuff like that. Um, but your coach is somebody who is there to hopefully keep you on track, put you on the right path and troubleshoot with you, right? And that might be troubleshooting technique. That might be troubleshooting your outlook on what you're doing. That might be motivation. That might be calming you down when you have too much energy or you know, you're a little bit too amped up. Uh, and it's a different thing, right? When I was wrestling in high school, my coach never taught any wrestling. He didn't, he didn't teach us a single technique. Our assistants did, right? And our assistants would coach us as well, but our head coach was a guy who kept us on track, made sure we got to the events. He was the guy who made the decisions on the, stra the strategic side of things as far as like which wrestler wrestles first and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I really enjoy the coaching aspect of what I do. I really enjoy that because I take my guys everywhere. We go to all the tournaments together. We travel across the country, across the world even. We've gone to Europeans. I took my guys to Japan. I've taken uh, guys all across every tournament that you can imagine. And I love that. I think it's, it's so fun for me to do that. It's really, really fun to see my guys succeed and enjoy their wins and, and lament their losses. And we, we do these things together as a real team. Um, that is so rare in jiu-jitsu. It was very rare for me to do that. I would travel with a couple of other guys, and I was the basically the only constant. I was this the one guy who was always there, and then like you know you interchange you know a guy here, a guy there, uh, you know a girl here, a guy there, whatever. And then throughout my almost my entire career up to me having my own gym, um, and then when I opened up assembly, I'm just like you guys are coming with me. We're going, we're going. And thankfully, um, I had the reputation at the time when I opened the gym of being a black belt, being uh, somewhat successful, that the guys who wanted to be competitors, they kind of gravitated towards me. And it took a while to build a strong team. It wasn't like overnight or anything. I didn't just get like, you know, 50 killer competitors all of a sudden. Um, it came in a bunch of different waves. But now we have this really, really solid team that just goes everywhere together and supports each other and you know, before when I used to have to like get on everybody's ass myself, um, it was tough, right? But now it's like I it's it's rare that I have to like go out of my way to figure something out that's going on. It's a lot of times that they just kind of this the the competitors themselves are kind of self-correcting with each other, 
And it's just, it's it's so nice to see. You know, it's not completely they're not completely self sufficient in that way. Uh, you still need oversight because we need to be on the same page. But you know, I have to do less now with more competitors than I ever had to do in the beginning because in the beginning I had to kind of like control the way things went because uh, you know you don't know exactly what to expect. You don't know exactly what to do, especially if you're just learning jiu-jitsu or just starting to compete. Um, so the coaching part is really, really great to me. Uh, instructing, teaching class, I, I enjoy that too. Uh, but I enjoy the coaching part and the instruction part is just kind of like ancillary to that. I'm glad you answered it in that way because it gives me a chance to kind of revisit a question that I had. You know, you've mentioned travel so much, like, you know, for your own personal use and then with your team. I guess the question is, what does travel do for you and, and why is it so important to you? Because it seems like, yeah, you get this time with your wife, you mentioned Japan, you mentioned traveling to Italy and all these different places. And then you kind of combine that with being able to take your students and travel with them. So I guess my question to you is, you know, why does it mean so much to you? Because yeah, you're name dropping it a, a few times and it's enough where I'm like, Oh, the guest is signposting. He definitely likes to travel. I guess I should do the follow-up question and ask why. It's um, traveling is one of the, it's, it's an important perspective shift for myself. Right. And uh, just like so many other people, when I find something that I really, really enjoy that, I, that affects my life in a positive way, I like to share that with the people that I care for. Right. Um, not necessarily the world, you know, I don't need to, to be on a soapbox and scream to the masses, but to, people that I care about, I want them to, at the very least, see this thing or experience this thing that if I experienced that um, gave me this incredible shift and positive thing in my life. Travel was one of those things earlier on, early on in my life, um, like in my, mid, my early to mid-20s, that gave me my uh, second perspective shift. Jiu-Jitsu was my first, right? Um, I used to hang around with a, a bunch of friends. We used to get in trouble. We used to drink. We used to party. We used to get into fights and do all these different, you know, dumb things you do as a high schooler at like, you know, 18 years old. And then when I decided to do jiu-jitsu, I cut all those people out of my life for a long time because I couldn't do both. Personally, I couldn't do both. I couldn't um, live this. I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to train. I'm just going to focus on this and also hang out with them at the same time. I wasn't strong enough to do both. So jiu-jitsu was my first shift. And obviously that's my business. That's the thing that I, 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 that I'm on my soapbox for. Travel then came a little bit later. I started traveling overseas. I started to go to, like my first, the, the first big international trip that I took was to, um, it was to Singapore, right? Far, you know, far out. Then I went to Malaysia and we, we, we spent a, a bunch of time there. And that was, that was so foreign to me. Amazing. Loved it. Had nothing to do with jiu-jitsu. Just, just travel. And then uh, eventually I went to uh, like Iceland. And then I eventually traveled to Japan. And, and, I started, and I lived there for a while. And all these things, it gave me such different perspectives on life uh, that, I, that I still hold. And it allows me to, I feel like, be better as a person and also uh, allows me to be more effective as an instructor and uh, effective in my life. And so when I have these things, it's like, this helped me it might help you too. And if you're trying to follow a similar path to what I was trying to do, what, you know, why would I, why would I keep this away from you if I feel like it might help? Cause it did help me. 
right? And so I'm like, you know what? What's the best part of jiu-jitsu? It's, it's, the, it's the part of doing new things, meeting new people, trying to win, trying to better yourself, and doing that by seeing the world as well, or doing that and seeing the world at the same time. I can't think of anything better, right? Allowing this thing that we do, this really difficult thing that makes us no money, right? Uh, very, you know, makes most people no money. It's like, but you can do these different things and, and take that as your experiences. Then hope, maybe you can leverage that into a career later on. Um, and so that's the thing that I love. I love being able to do that for people. And, and uh, some people, it doesn't actually, it doesn't change them any one bit. They don't care. That's fine too. You know, something else might affect them and they're going to learn whatever that thing is. and They're going to pass that on to people they love and they care about. Uh, but this is the thing that I can pass along, that I can pass along. Um, that's very valuable to me. Um, so, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a member of my, my gym and you're a competitor and you want to travel with us and we allow everybody to do it, it's not like I pick and choose who's going. I might pick it. I might tell this guy you have to go, but I'm never going to tell that person they can't go. Right. So if anybody ever wants to come with us, they're always welcome. And we, we talk about this all the time. And so we always get, you know, a kind of like a rotating group around the guys who are always the constants. Right. And, uh, we have a great time. It's just so fun. And, uh, and we're very, we have this very, very team-like atmosphere where it's not just this individual thing. You go out there and you win or you lose and it's just you. And then you go back to your hotel room and you just kind of sit there and you take your Instagram photo of your medal on your bed. And uh, you post on the internet, just like hoping people are there to support you. It's like, no, it's like those people are actually in the room. They're sleeping on the floor, you know, like they're there. And, uh, it's, there's just, there's so few things better than that. Um, and so I'm, I'm very happy to kind of at where we're at, uh, as far as the team is concerned. Uh, but I just want to keep it going, you know, and maybe we add to it, maybe, maybe some things fall away, but as it stands, it's, it's just so fun. That's gotta be so cool to be able to take something that you were doing on your own and now be able to share that. Like, I think that's uh, a true growth. Like that's definitely a very unique thing because so many competitors are so used to doing it on their own. And if you're lucky, maybe you get a buddy and maybe you have one buddy that comes and then maybe you have a little bit of a tribe. Maybe there's three or four of you that are all hoping to do something big. Uh, IIBJJF, ADCC, maybe you're doing that together. But to do it as a team now and combining your loves of jiu-jitsu and traveling, I think is really unique and interesting. But having lived somewhere else, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, are there things, because I have never traveled to foreign destinations, but I do know when I travel domestically, my gear's in my bag. Mm -hmm. Are there things that we should know or things that help us whenever we're going to different destinations that from your time in, in teaching and living in different places, that you can suggest to those people who are looking to both travel and do jujitsu as a guest in different places? Um, you know, one thing I will say is if you go in to, and I've done this in so many different places, so many different uh, uh, countries, if you go in and you just be as polite as you can, pay whatever drop-in fee it is, offer to pay. If they, if they tell you, no, it's free, just just, you know, buy a shirt or something like that. Show support for the place that you're going to train at as a person that, you know, you don't know, you know, you don't know anybody there. If you're nice and, you, and you're not training like an asshole, especially in the very beginning, those people will take care of you 
nine out of 10 times. And um, whenever I traveled solo, I get to get the real experience of what that place has to offer because it, it never fails. Every time I go somewhere and, I'm, and I go by myself and I'm training in a foreign place and a foreign gym or whatever, they always offer to take me out, like, hey, or, or give me recommendations or say, hey, no, don't go to this place. That's for tourists. Come over here. It's going to be the best whatever uh, that you'll ever have. And that's, that's, that's the beauty of traveling and doing jiu-jitsu. You are plugged into this, uh, this like system that allows you to have an in with local people if you know nobody. You could travel anywhere, almost anywhere in the world, go to a jiu-jitsu gym, and then automatically be plugged into that local scene of whatever it is that you're, you know, food at the very least, you know what I mean? But, you know, travel and, 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 and seeing what's going on. You don't need a Lonely Planet, um, you know, uh, book to tell you what you should do in, you know, Paris or, or uh, London. You could just go to the Go to Hodger's gym and, and you know outside of London and say, hey, where's the best? What do they eat? Whatever, whatever they eat in England. You know what I mean? And then you have, I guarantee you, have six guys tell you, oh, look, let's let's walk down the street. We'll take you there. You know. And uh, so if you have your, you know, if you can pack a rash guard and shorts because geese suck anyway, uh, it's a lot smaller. You know, you can fit in your backpack. Um, it'll be really easy. Um, and if not, just buy some gear there if you if you can afford it, or you know, ask to borrow some and just. Go in there with being really, really nice, and those people will take care of you. Um, you know, and if you can avoid it, like don't smash a bunch of people on your first moment there, unless it's one of those gyms where they really appreciate that. You know, uh, in that case, you know, do your thing, but uh, just be nice. Go train. You know, have fun. I love that you had the most uplifting travel destination sort of uh, promotion advertisement commercial, and deep within that is a very quickly seated like he sucks anyway what i'm telling you guys is and i'm like how did my man slip in something so negative with the overall message that's so positive because it was just like do i hear this right okay okay i have to ask now because you you brought this out why does the geese suck sir is it just that the geese sucks to travel or is this you just like slight jab to my friends in the pajamas it's, you know, I, I trained the gi for like 10 years. So it's, it's uh, you know, it, I, I can say that. It's one of those things. I can say that because I did it, right? Uh, no, I, I, it, the gi is cool. But it's just, it's not as cool as it, as it once was, right? Uh, and anybody may, trying to make that argument, that they, you know, it, it's like, okay, you can, but all the professional events are, are no gi. All the, all the events that people are watching are no gi. Every single one of them. There's like, a, you know, any... Uh, pay-per-view event that is with the exception of like bjj stars right you know because that's still huge um you, you just don't see it it's just not they're not popular it's not you know nobody's watching those things and if they are you know okay we'll have more power to them but um i just like to stick it to the gi every once in a while just because you know what i mean it's uh makes me feel good i hear it and i'm definitely somebody who trains way more no gi than i do in gi so i get it you're somewhat preaching to the choir it's just the geese lander is something that I have to police every once in a while, especially when I know the guy and I know how the message comes out. I just want to give you feedback as the dude who sits classily in chairs. You do run the risk of being a hipster. And I want to make sure you know this because your explanation of the gee 
being not what it used to be is getting very close to hipstery language of like, man, it used to be cool back in the day, but like, I don't know, man, he's changed. And it's like, he hasn't changed in fucking a thousand years, dude. Like that's, that's part of the problem, right? That's, yeah. that's part of the reason. <laughs> but I'm just like, if anything, just come up with a better excuse I, because I, if you're just sitting there being like, I don't know, man, he used to be cool. And then it didn't. I'm like, the, the dude sitting in a chair is now making me have to roast him. And I, uh, I, I don't know that I, I want to. Okay. Well, how about we'll say this. All of the most entertaining matches in the world in the last five years have come in the no gay sport. All of them. It, it, the last match that I can think of that was an extremely entertaining match uh, that was a gay match. And then I'm sure there are other ones. But the last one that I can remember was Hadra Bushesha 2. And that happened in, what, 2018? Yeah. Or, right? Yeah. That's the last one I can remember. It's a long time. It's a long, I mean, it's a long time. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. You know? Guy is less the thing right now. That, that is the hard right. part for me. Is, you know, I have, I have put together tournaments. I have been a proponent of, hey, I want to have like a game match or two on there. And then without fail, I've had gi people either be the worst to deal with or, you know, the matches weren't great. And here I am over on the side being like, I fought for you motherfuckers and you gave me nothing. <laughs> so I, I have that sort of as an entertainment perspective. I just feel like as a TV person, my biggest thing is always we haven't cracked the code. And it doesn't mean that it, it will happen. But I, I know there's something there. And if it's something compelling enough that your grandma can do it to your grandkid can do it, and you can't say the same for Nogi, it's just a matter of finding the form and the mechanism and the rule set that make it work. But mm -hmm. if you over-police things too much, like at IBJJF, you have what is the standard is, but that may not translate to everybody who wants to watch and rush to see it. Could you imagine in the key if they just allowed reaping and heel hooks a lot of those issues that i have a problem with in key matches uh the the constant the eight the eight minutes of 50 50 the you know the lapel guards and all this stuff and, and the, the lockdowns it's like the a, a lot of them not everything but a lot of those would be they would have to be reworked Right, like they would just; those things wouldn't be as effective as they are at slowing the game down. And um, I think it would be. I don't know why he had to like has to not have heel hooks. I don't understand why that's the case. Um, why should no gi have them? But gi is like it's blasphemous. It it makes no sense to me. And. I kind of get the idea of why masters are not supposed to be doing, or they don't want masters doing heel hooks like in Nogi, because it's like they're old and they're not going to learn them. Um, and, you know, like let's just phase it up. You know, maybe in five years, master one will be allowed to do heel hooks because it'll kind of have aged appropriately. But it's just at this point, allow them to do heel hooks, even if it's just that brown and black belt or just black belt. And then I think you're going to have a lot more exciting matches. I might even go back to competing in the key. Uh, because I like collar chokes. I love choking guys from the back with lapels. I mean, I think that's one of the, I think that's probably the coolest way to, to end a match is but with like a bow and arrow choke, right? And now that's, I'm deprived of that because uh, I don't like 
to being in the gi for various reasons, uh, you know, and my fingers hurt uh, because of the gis. But like, if they just allow that, even on like a uh, a random like uh, one event only, it's like you guys could do here. Let's just see how it goes. I think that would be awesome. Um, and then I wouldn't talk nearly as much shit about the gi. But right now, it's just it's, it's just not not entertaining to me. Um, and I think for a lot of people, and then there's going to be a lot of diehards that are like, no, the gi is still great. And they're, they're saying it because they feel that way. And, or maybe they just don't want to let go and they don't want to, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure, but, um, I think they should definitely adjust that. And then I think it would be more entertaining for everybody. Well, if there's one thing I know about the IBJJF, it's that they take criticism well. So don't worry about that. (laughs) Uh, I just know that as somebody who has given them feedback and they've been less than enthralled by it, uh, I've always been like, I want to root for you. It's just, if you hear this feedback, you hear people are telling you they don't love certain things and maybe that doesn't affect your business model, but I think people see the trajectory of where things are going and we're just trying to say like, this might make you a little bit more competitive in four years because Mm -hmm. I'll tell you this, as somebody who's a master now a couple times over as much as i'm like yeah i'm kind of worried about that dude's knee i'm like yo i kind of need heel hooks dude i'm sorry uh and that dude should know how to tap to them at this point like it's fairly simplistic in its rule set i just understand you don't want to have to deal with it if something bad happens however having said that you know most people should probably be encouraged to do this and not just given Uh, a little bit of a pass if they don't have that as part of their game. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the biggest issue that people have is it's like, well, when you're training for IBJJF, all of us are used to saying like, oh, you don't have to worry about heel hooks. Just we're going to move on. Just make sure you have this because they can't read or do this. And I go, that seems like such a conditional thing to just say, let's ignore this because whatever the rule set says, you don't have to worry about it. And I feel like that's the, the kind of issue that people run into as competitors. I feel like if they don't want to add heel hooks uh, to the Masters divisions now, but they have some type of plan to do it later, because I feel like they have to, right? I mean, what about all these these adult competitors now? Eventually, they'll, you know, many of them are going to age into the Masters division, and then now all of a sudden you took away a major tool from them. It just it seems weird. So I'm okay with Master One. And Master Two, Master you know, all of them not having heel hooks today. I'm okay with it because I'm happy at the very least because I'm competing as an adult and I plan to for quite a while. Um, but at least give us a plan that Master One will eventually, like in 2026, Master One will allow heel hooks, and then in 2029, Master Two will allow heel hooks, and then eventually we'll have every, like all belts will have everything. Because, first off, a more dangerous technique, in my opinion, and it's really for the person putting it on, is a calf slicer, right? Like, how many people do you know who have blown their knees out doing calf slicers or getting put in calf slicers, right? I know more people in the gym, including myself, blowing my knee out because of a calf slicer or a calf slicer-style move, right, uh, than I do, you know, people getting seriously hurt with heel hooks outside of the highest level where people are just eating them. Right. Um, so like, at least give us like this you know, plan, this long-term plan. Like this is what we plan on having all masters do them, uh, or we never allow, we're never planning on having, at least so we know, you know, that, that will make things a little bit easier. And then maybe it'll allow people to 
teach these things to older guys. Like I teach you hooks to all my guys. My white belts learn them. My 69 year old, uh, you know, uh, competitor, not competitor, but uh, students uh, are learning them and, and applying them and getting put in them. They're fine. You know what I mean? It's okay to, to do that. But people are just such sissies sometimes. It just hurts my feelings. I just, I love the fact that uh, I always tell people, you can tell what kind of instructor I am because I'm always the person that goes, all right, I don't want you guys doing this, but it's good that you know it. All right, everybody come in. And they'll be like, yeah. And I always feel like I'm teaching them like that uh, uncle shit that you go, all right, your dad's not going to show you this, but I'm going to show you it. And then you literally show it to them. And I go, here are my expectations. I want you to know it. I want you to drill it. I want you to do it. Now, if somebody does it, don't be a dick to your training partners. You're in control of what you can and cannot do. And if you think it's hard, just remember, and then I'll show them like, say like a neon belly pressure. I'm like, feel the difference between me rolling with you and how I expect people to fight or who are competing to have neon belly pressure. And they're like, oh, there's a major difference. And I'm like, yeah, dude, because I like you. And just know it's the same kind of structure that you have for a heel hook. You shouldn't be doing this this intently, but you should know the form and know how to use it if you so choose. And they're just like, oh, okay, cool. And I'm like, all you have to do is just look out for each other and I'm good. But you should know the techniques because guess what? Day one, when I showed up, people were footlocking me and I go, and the weird part is I got out of them on day one. So my body didn't know what we were doing. It was just like, ah, eh, don't do that to me. And as a result, then I started asking questions. I was like, why is he doing this to me? Is that allowed? Like what, it, to me, it just became like, that's part of what you have to learn rather mm -hmm. than like, Ooh, it's scary. Don't do it. It's like, oh shit. From the get go, they were already attacking that. So I better have an answer. So right. I think it's, uh, it definitely made me, and I, for years, did not consider myself a leg locker. I was just like, oh, okay, I should probably know that. And then mm -hmm. as a result of it, now now I'm doing all sorts of dumb shit with the legs where I'm like, yeah, you know, if you ended up in a Boston crowd, that's your fault, kids, not mine. Yeah. If you learn good technique to get out, then you're good. 100%. Yeah, I, I didn't learn um, hillhooks until I was a brown belt. Uh, that was that was when I that was when I started to learn them, and it was, I was getting roasted so much by just like guys who like, you know some guys were good, some guys who weren't good. I was just getting killed in leg locks, like not necessarily ankle locks, but just like outside heel hooks. People were just killing me, and I'm like, I know I'm good at jiu-jitsu, you know, at this point because I had done some things already, and it's like, but I have no answers for this thing. And I was like, I remember I was like pissed at my instructors. I'm like, why the fuck didn't you guys teach me this shit? It's like. Why? You know, like, because they're not legal in a certain tournament, but it's obviously extremely effective. And it's not like you're not teaching me how to punch and kick, which are also obviously very um, uh, uh, real things. But this is grappling still. Like, we're still grappling. And they can do this to me, uh, at least in a lot of different tournaments, maybe not all of them, but in a lot of them at the time. But I don't know anything about them. And I was just getting hurt. Because, like, like, I just, like, try to get myself out of them because I didn't know which direction to go in. And I just – I'd blow my ankle out or whatever. It's like, you know. So I, I remember that – I never wanted my students to feel that feeling that I had after just getting heel-hooked eight times in a four-minute roll that, that I felt with, about my instructors. Uh, now, they'll probably feel that way about other things about me, but, they may, but not specifically not learning leg locks early on in their, in their you know, their training. 
Yeah, my favorite thing to do is especially if somebody's wrecking me at one thing. And I, I've had the pleasure of being in rooms that I don't belong in. But let's say I roll with somebody and they've leg locked me like 20 times, whatever. My favorite thing to do is like the next day I go to class and like, everybody bring it in. They're like, what? And I was like, I'm going to show you. Somebody caught me with this a bunch, so you better know it. And then they're just like, oh, okay, great. And they're like, what happened here? And I was like, I don't know, man. This dude had a really good entry. I hated it. I had no answer for it today. I'm going to figure it out. But until then, you should know yeah. these things. And they're like, yeah. And I go, yep. Have at someone who just won an ADCC Open did this to me pretty easily. So you should know it too. And they're like, yeah. And I go, it's part of the learning process though. It's, it's like us getting these cheat codes and me being able to say like, ah, you know what? This is valuable information. So this is good. So even just the, the looking of it where I'm like, they're not trying to kill me. Like I'm not competing against them. I'm just like, oh, I don't have an answer for this. This is good to know. So I always, uh, I always take all these opportunities to do that. David, here's the thing. We have gone over uh, a lot uh, in terms of the time that we had talked about. So I don't want to be disrespectful of your time, but I do want to give you an opportunity to go ahead and give a shout out to uh, any sponsors, to your gym, tell people where they can come, uh, not only get good recommendations, I'm sure for the city where you teach at, but also mm -hmm. for uh, probably the best coffee recommendations at any gym nearby you, I'm sure. But uh, the floor is all yours, sir. Uh, so my gym is Assembly Jiu-Jitsu. We're uh, just outside of Detroit in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. So if you guys ever want to stop by and get some training in, please feel free to just uh, just DM me uh, on Instagram or, or uh, my school's uh, Instagram page at Assembly Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, shout out to the the best uh, Jiu-Jitsu gi and uh, no gi sponsors, VHCS, uh, making the dopest stuff, always having me drip drop, you know, looking good. Um and uh, shout out to all the competitors at Assembly getting ready for the ADCC Open in Chicago and Noki Pants coming up. Uh, these guys are going to do some really cool things. So, guys, pay attention uh, and watch them do their thing. I love the fact that you literally dropped in for our good friends over at VHTS to be like, I don't often wear a gi, but when I do, it's a VHTS. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's nothing quite like being like, hey, 20 minutes ago when I was talking about gi, I didn't mean that about you. I love you, VHTS geese. Hey, there's, there's opinions and there's making money. It's two different things, right? <laughs> Raph, these chairs don't find themselves being broke, my friend. 100%. That's a hey, fact. Uh, let's do this. Uh, I'm going to say bye to you off air, but David, I just want to say a uh, huge uh, fan of what you're doing. I always appreciate whenever I see you in a match. And, like, dude, it's so nice to be able to put name to face conversation to person because your jujitsu speaks for itself. And like, man, I have seen you get after it in some really awesome matches where I've just been like, yeah, it's a matter of time. I don't know where or when I'm going to talk to this dude. And you can tell that you're on my list when I just go like, Hey man, I don't even know that you have a match coming up or any of that bullshit. I just want to talk to you now because I'm tired of waiting for whatever the next thing is. And then if you get into the next thing, I don't want to have to interrupt you while you're getting ready for the next thing. I just want to fucking talk to you. So it was very kind of you to take time out of your schedule and to make this conversation happen today, sir. No, it was awesome. I really appreciate you, uh, you having me on. This is really fun. Thanks, man. All right, I'll say bye to you in a second off air. <laughs> David, thank you very much for appearing on the show, sir. Anytime, guys. Take care. All right, guys. So let's just close this bitch up. Thank you so much for watching. It has been a great day for grappling, all that good of stuff. But I want to make sure that we harp on this. I.page backslash grappling hour. Become a member. $5.
to see all of these interviews 30 days before anybody else. Also, if you do the premium membership, then you can see extra bonus content, meaning episodes that aren't available anywhere else. You can also check out some of my competition footage because it's very funny. And you can also check out uh, certain little special things, little vlogs and stuff that I do on the side that nobody has access to. So do that. Also, become a member of our Grappling Hour Discord. You're usually the first to hear any new information about the show in that Discord. I put questions up literally every weekday so that everybody can get engaged, etc., etc. And if you made it this far into the video, maybe you're too lazy to turn it off. I don't know if you're cleaning the house. I don't know what you're doing. But like, comment, share. What I mean by comment right now in that comment section, leave a comment. Even if you have nothing to say about this interview, you could say something like, Hey, Raph, this week I was working on blank. I'll respond to you more than likely. Unless you're a dick. If you're a troll or a bot and you're trying to sell something, I got no time for you. But if you made it this far, that engagement always helps us. And more importantly, that means I can interview and bring on more people to the show. All right, you guys. That's it. That's all I got. You can go away in like literally 30 seconds. It's been a great day for grappling. We'll see you back on the mats.